Hello and how are you, all my beautiful strangers and savages out there, like in podcast land, on Podbean, on Stitcher, on Google uh, Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, of course, um, and many more platforms that are joining us continuously. Um, it goes along with the saying here, um, time joy is changing just as the top joy is changing, and it seems that the opportunities are arising. Hello, I am your self-proclaimed, of course, Armchair Elitist Rue, and this is the Armchair Elitist Podcast, The Confessions of Cinephile. Every month, um, I like to do not so much a segment, but just kind of um, a tribute to each of my personal random, I have huge selection as a, you know, true cinephile of just an endless list of top of the line elite, you know, unmatched almost, actually, yeah, unmatched directors and actors you know, different styles, not better or worse, just different, and I will be covering them, and this month of February is the Stanley Kubrick saga, in which every week I will be doing a couple episodes, um, every week you will get at least one episode, but I will guarantee at least, uh, two to three, um, it'll be covering you know, not in a linear um, or chronological sense, but it will be covering some of his best films. And in some of his worst films. Um, critics aside, this podcast, as you know, all my beautiful strangers and savages out there alike that have uh, stayed with me, this podcast is not so much a best of series as it is just a series of movies that in general provoked human emotion. So I will be covering some of the more risque uh, features of Kubrick, such as the classic Lolita, um, which is basically a very risque tale of, you know, potential pedophilia and you know the temptation of an aging man going through a midlife crisis um, being tempted by an underage girl an underage girl that uh, you know is agony on <laughs> let's just say that I don't want to get too much into that, though, because I do have a special treat planned, um, actually, for that. I will be doing a special segment, and it will be an episode here in the next week or so. Um, it will be a comparison episode. It will be the episode comparing Lolita and the great, great resemblances and the proven connections from Lolita... Stanley Kubrick's classic masterpiece of um, promiscuous just 
downfall, really. Um, and American Beauty, the 1999 Kevin Spacey modern day classic, which is basically a completely different message, but at the same time, definitely they're proven and confirmed connections and I cannot wait to share that with you but as of today I figured it'd be a bit stereotypical of course to start the Kubrick saga off with say The Shining which will be covered um let's see Barry Lyndon you know, a more obscure one of his, but probably his most aesthetically pleasing film, or one of the most aesthetically pleasing films of all time. Uh, maybe even what most scholars have named as the best movie, the best cinematic feature, and the most scientifically accurate feature of all time, and it's 2001 Space Odyssey. But then I started Quander. And although I'm not sure if that's a word, because it is pretty late. I don't know why I'm recording this late, but I just couldn't wait. Times are always changing, topics are always changing, yet feelings and passion only change and grow. Excuse me, they don't only change, but they also grow. And the burning passion side of me decided the best thing to kick off the Stanley Kubrick saga is his 1987 classic, the very dark war film, Full Metal Jacket. It is a 1987 war film. Uh, it was directed, co-written, and produced by the Stanley Kubrick course uh while starring matthew modine um arlie <laughs> excuse me arlie ermy um goodness, uh, vincent d on ferio uh which baldwin was in it adam baldwin yes the screenplay by kubrick uh michael Herr and gustav hosford was um based on hosford's novel the uh, 1979 um novel the short timers You see, the storyline, the primary storyline, I should say, we'll get to the subliminals, the symbolism, and everything else. My two million cents, as I like to call it, because two cents does not cut it here. I'll get into that in a bit, but um, the primary plot follows a platoon of U.S. Marines through their training. Um, you, you know, you definitely get some amazing character development here of course just because even though each character is literally only given a name because of the insults thrown at them by their sergeant you know example joker you know what are you a comedian you're a joker you know, kind of bs <laughs> the storyline follows a platoon Oh, excuse, excuse me. <clears throat> oh, 
great artists always go until they drop, and fatigue truly will never be what hinders me. The storyline follows between of the U.S. soldiers through the train, of course, primarily focusing on uh, two privates. And, um, you know, the emphasis, of course, is on them too, and that is Joker and Pyle, who uh, struggle, you know, to get through boot camp. They're, they're the underdogs, if you will. But they're not the regular underdogs, which, you know, you're cheering for them because you don't know if they'll make it through. No, this is a brutal realistic um, telling of the horrors seen in Vietnam and the horrors seen in war in general. This is an unadulterated look, primarily focusing on not shying away from human instinct, which can be sometimes the darkest thing of all. Like in the scene where uh, Adam Baldwin I believe it's Adam Baldwin that shoots the sniper or Matthew Modine, either one. It turns out to be, you know, a mid-aged Asian lady. And she's choking. She's dying. She's choking on her blood. She's going to drown in her own blood because of the shot. And so, yeah, it's Matthew Modine. Joker is conflicted because this is where one of the main subliminal plots comes into play and that is the duality of man such as uh, examples such as the classic ending and all that symbolism which I will get into um, goodness Joker's helmet which you know says born to kill and then literally has the peace sign right next to it um, it shows the movie shows the transformation of what the army does to dehumanize their volunteers. <laughs> um, they do this to turn them into killing machines. This is a very real thing, but this is a very realistic and this is a fatalistic, brutal, brutal, brutally real take on um, what it is exactly to be transformed into a killing machine whenever you were a sensitive person or overly emotional or just a whatever you are you're transformed into basically the Manchurian candidate you just kill on notice and it's just, it's really a revelation but it's a dark one. It is much like the film Requiem for a Dream, just not, you know, drug-related. It's one of those movies that's so dark that you really don't ever want to watch it again. <laughs> I do, because I just, I love Kubrick's work, but my point being, it's one of those cinematic pieces of, you know, the annals of history in cinema like I said, are not always good. And although this is a classic, um, and it, you know, received critical acclaim and, you know, an Academy Award nomination for best uh, adapted screenplay for Kubrick, her enhanced for, um, in 2001, the 
American Film Institute placed it at number 95 in their AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills poll. It's very renowned, it's very critically acclaimed, but it's very misunderstood at the same time. See, like I said, the primary plot, going back to it, primarily primarily focuses on um, Joker and Pyle. They're strugglers. They're trying to get through, but through the rigorous, you know, obstacles of boot camp and under their abusive drill structure, um, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, which, by the way, is played by the real former sergeant who ad-libbed all of his, you know, insults and lines. I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a man in his ass and not even have the goddamn courtesy to give the man a reach around. Like, off the top of his head. You know, he's amazing. Arlie Ernie. Ernie, excuse me. Um, that he's their abusive drill instructor. Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. And, um, the experiences of the two of the platoons, you know, Marines and the Tet offense during the Vietnam War. A war we started with false propaganda and false flag operation in general. It just breaks my heart to think of how many people lost their lives or completely just shell-shocked for no good reason. For people, just on a side note, for people that I don't know, in 2013, uh, documents were declassified, um, stating that basically, just like with the German, uh, German U-boats in World War One, you know, they claimed that, you know, the ship Lusitania went down, and that's basically what started the war. It never happened. And basically, the same kind of thing happened with the Vietnam War. It was built off of a lie. Um, the film's title, of course, refers to the Full Metal Jacket bullet used by soldiers. Um, let's see, the film was released in the United States, you know, on June 26, 87. Um, little known fact, it was actually the last of Kubrick's films to be released during his lifetime. Eyes Wide Shut was his last film, but this one was... It's hard to explain. This one was an enigma in itself. It it really was. Because Because war is ugly. <laughs> but anyways, um it runs 116 minutes. Um it's in English, Vietnamese, of course. The producer Stanley Kubrick, the man. Gustav Hansford, as I said, um, Michael Haar, Stanley Kubrick from the novel, of course, taken by the short timers, Gustav Hansford, Shadow, and rest in peace. Uh, photography was done by the great Douglas Milsom. Music, Abigail Med, Vivian Kubrick, otherwise known as, <laughs> as uh, Stanley Kubrick's wife. The cast, um, the brilliant Matthew Modine, in a very young role. Um, Adam Baldwin a great role even though he's one of the generic Baldwin brothers uh, Vincent Ontario R.E. Ermey Dorian Harewood Arliss Howard 
Kevin Major, Howard, um, Ed Ross, John Terry, Kirian uh, Genesis, Bruce Boa, Kirk Taylor, John Strafford, Tim Solari, Ian Tyler, goodness, Oscar nomination Stanley Kubrick, you know, uh, Michael Hurt, and Gustav Hosford got the best uh, screenplay nomination. But the thing about this project is the most eloquent and exacting vision of the war to date inspired with technique this film is rather than overblown with it. And that is a quote by Destin Howe from the Washington Post in 87 when it came out. That's just one of the best descriptions I could really put into this. Um, let's see here. Let's put a little spin on this. Alright. This is the Kubrick saga, so let's just go with everything for a moment. The Stanley Kubrick's bar- uh, film from 1975, Barry Lyndon. The major battle scenes depicts an engagement that the narrator tells us did not make the history books. You know, those memorable enough for those who took part. When he came to make a movie about Vietnam, a little after the various angst-ridden and, you know, fantastical takes by Francis Ford Coppola in The Amazing Apocalypse Now from 1979, and Oliver Stone, of course, with Platoon from 86, um has established an acid napalm haze cinematic vocabulary I guess you could say for that war Kubrick builds on this approach Full Metal Jacket presents um, a grunt level world in which all all officers commissioned or not are ridiculously but deadly alien beings (laughs) even hookers we're told are serving officers in the Viet Cong as they say in the movie and the trudging heroic marines so many you know take the high ground you know the 1953 kind of pictures are nicknamed kids you know without a clue of where they are or what they're doing they're literally only named through the insults in which their sergeant gives them you know like I said such as Gomer Pyle and Joker etc based on the short timers it's an autobiographical novel by Gustav Hosford with script input from Michael Herr, you know, author of Dispatches and the Apocalypse Now voiceover. Full Metal Jacket is ruthless. It is comedic in a very dark way. It's horrific and affecting. All in an equal measure. It's very well-rounded, emotionally evoking movie, invoking movie. And it is truly a cinematic masterpiece. 
You see, it's it's all ruthless. It's comedic. It's horrific and everything. Like I said, and it's all in equal measure because depicting areas of the war rarely glimpsed in movies, especially at this time. A long opening act is set entirely on Perry Island. The induction train center. And uh, after a montage in which long-haired young men are shorn to become bald drones no more distinguishable than the future folk of George Lucas's THX 1138, the 1971 film. The film is commandeered by the astonishing Arlie Ermey er- as Drill Sergeant Hartman, who's obscene, fucking inventive ambitious, relentless abuse against all the recruits. <laughs> like I said, one of my favorite lines, I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give the man a reach around. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great, but it's designed to break down the quote-unquote maggots totally before they can be rebuilt as killing machines. And in a lecture, you know, Hartman takes pride and the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald and Charles Whitman learned to shoot in the Marines. The horrible irony of the sequence, which closely parallels the gladiator training regiment of Spartacus, another Kubrick movie from 1970, or excuse me, 1960. Is it the... The logical payoff is the transformation of a pudgy, foul-up, fuck-up, whatever you want to say, Vincent D'Onfario, Gomer Pyle, into one of Kubrick's grotesque ape-men, with a primal glare that echoes the drugs of A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick's 71 masterpiece, and Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining from 1980, the adaptation from Stephen King's uh, novel. This this demonic, ominous matador, eyebrow, expression that has echoed through many a film with Kubrick. It's kind of a sign of a beast. Once the cage has just been opened and it cannot be shut. It's real Sergeant Hartman who's obscene, you know, just inventive. I'll just say that. His inventive abuse. As it broke down, like it was designed to, the maggots, before they could be rebuilt as killing machines. It... It's designed... to teach us... true subliminals. Because Harbin takes pride, like I said, in the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald, shoes shooter of JFK, which I personally do not believe, and Charles Whitman,
learn to shoot in the Marines. Like I said, the horrible irony of this sequence, which closely parallels, you know, Spartacus from 1960, is that the logical payoff of the transformation of Gorn Pyle, a nice pudgy, fu you know, fuck up that has a heart of gold but has no willpower. He, you know, gets caught with a donut and he has to, sh you know, be humiliated in front of the whole team and eventually, you know, the whole squadron, just the battalion, they tie him up in bed sheets and torture him by, you know, beating him with frozen oranges or bars of soap or something and you just can't really forget that sound of the grown man just sobbing and weeping as they all just went back to bed saying don't say a fucking word or you're dead you know and there's the big giant grown man crying like a baby in his bed just bawling not from pain so much which yes it's definitely from pain as he is screaming Ow! Ah! it's very disturbing but it's more from the fact that that was another big big crack the psyche of what is inevitably to become the broken psyche of that character in which going full circle the matador look will be presented because it is only presented once the beast is out and the first thing the new made marine does with that matador look Late one night, they hear a very weird noise. Middle of the night, the battalion's sleeping. Bathrooms are open. All the shitters, excuse me, toilets to you politically correct people. Are just out in the open. It's like prison. Matthew Modine's character goes into the bathroom only to find a psychologically fractured and broken Gomer Pyle. Dementedly just sitting on a toilet by himself with his AK-47. Cleaning it. Glock stocking and reloading it over and over. Reciting this is my gun. Without my gun, I am nothing. Blah, 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 blah. In such a powerful tone. In a very methodical, ominous way. But then, he starts screaming. And he just, he snapped. He is completely snapped. And he's just standing there. This is my gun. Without my gun, I am nothing. Blah, 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 blah. Finally, the sergeant wakes up. And yes, even in the middle of the night, he has his hat on. <laughs> I just gotta throw that out there, I love it. He comes on his boxers, and comes out, you know, night clothes, but he's still got that big-ass sergeant hat on. Anyways, he goes up to Gomer Pyle, and he realizes, so, oh shit, I've went too far. Because he literally just looks, the first time you see concern on that man's eyes in the movie, maybe even in life, he is a legitimate badass. 
he just looks at Gomer and he says think about what you're doing because I promise you that and right as he's threatening Gomer Gomer snapped he is now the matador he is now that bull the, he is the epitome of human duality he was the nicest cuddliest person beginning and here he shoots dead his superior officer Matthew Modine is scared to death Joker in the movie cowboy and everybody else they're scared to death but Joker's the only one right there Pyle just looks at him simply accepts his perfect insanity if you will for what context he will be living and he just sits back down in the dark sitting on the cold toilet covered in the blood of his superiors mentally not so much fractured but um, shattered After this, the Vietnam sequences are almost a relief. Like I said, this movie is a different level of darkness. But you have to be astute to the cinematic arts. You have to be able to read true subliminals and know subplots and know arcs of the story and where and why. No waste of space. That's how Stanley Kubrick rolled. But after this, the Vietnam sequences, like I said, are a relief. Almost. As Private Joker, you know, Matthew Modine, a journalist, he invents a little, only to be confronted with even more demented demented individuals. (laughs) When asked how he can kill women and children, a helicopter Gunner gives a technical answer. Well, I just put the bullet right through the brain, you know, and that usually works. It's very, uh, very disturbing at times. He really touches on the sickness of humanity. Stanley Kubrick did. When asked how he can kill them, to give that technical answer but while a colonel remarks son all I've ever asked of my marines is that they obey my orders as they would the word of God the climax is a skirmish and it's also a symbolistic telling of a story and a perfect conclusion to this hellacious place where like on the cover of the original poster like it says in Vietnam the wind doesn't blow it sucks 
climaxes a skirmish during a battle in the rubble of Hugh City, in which Joker's platoon encountered a female Viet Cong sniper. Now, I could just easily put this um, very cleanly and say, uh, let's just say that nobody wouldn't see a counter. Well, many people in the battalion die from the sniper. And the sniper shot brutally. She's choking on her own blood. And she's begging to, for death, basically, to Matthew Modine, Joker. And this is one of the biggest parts in the film where it literally takes, you know, human duality and it shows you how far it can truly go. Just like the peace sign two inches away from Born to Kill. The ending is a symbolistic masterpiece for in the rubble of few cities I was saying, which Joker's platoon, you know, encounter a female Vietcon sniper, which he is forced to make a decision. Do I shoot her? Be brutal, you know, obviously be horrible. It's a mercy kill in his eyes. Otherwise she'll suffer. She will choke on her own blood until she dies. Think about that. Drowning in water. Water fills your lungs until you no longer breathe. Just imagine blood filling up your lungs. Thick blood. Ugh. She's dying. Sniper. She's choking. And right when you think, oh wow, I'm going to have to watch this girl... <sighs> Completely just choked. That's that's good. <sighs> but this is a very different skirmish climax. And he shoots her. Ends the sniper suffering, by the way. While other members of the platoon made very vile comments. The Marines, after this troop off in the night seeing the Mickey Mouse song of all things in a fire and rubble covered dystopian looking what used to be village him and his battalion are marching in synchronization of course singing the Mickey Mouse Club theme song only Kubrick would dare tweak Disney like this. <laughs> but it goes deeper, really, than just tweaking Disney. The ending... Like I said, it starts with Joker's Battalion marching through the burning rubble of the city in Vietnam. Singing the Mickey Mouse song. 
Excuse me. Marching through the bright rubble of the city in Vietnam, singing the Mickey Mouse song. To understand the meaning of this scene, you first have to understand one of the film's main themes. And I've said previous, as I've said previous times before in this episode, that is the duality of man. The Joker's helmet, you know, like I said, born to kill, peace. the most eloquent and exacting vision of the war to date of any war because it's inspired with technique rather than overblown with it once again as the words of Dennis Howe from 1987's edition of Washington Post What is the symbolism behind the end of the future? (laughs) 